We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. These are the words of the late President John F. Kennedy in the year 1962, just as the space race had begun, President Kennedy made a stirring speech under the sweltering hot sun in Houston, Texas. This is what he had to say. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. I do not say that we should or will go unprotected against the hostile misuse of space any more than we go unprotected against the hostile use of land or sea. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. There is no national conflict in outer space, as yet. These words remain just as true today as they were half a century ago when President Kennedy spoke them. And yet, in the decades since, the governments and militaries of the world have prepared for a war in outer space. Their plans never came to pass. Not yet, anyway. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. We've already regaled you with the exploits of NASA, America's civilian space program, and the adventures of early astronauts like Yuri Gagarin, Alan Shepard, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong. But as public as the space exploits of these men were, there were other events taking place behind closed doors, shrouded in secrecy, unknown to ordinary Americans and to the rest of the world, events that could have destroyed human civilization itself, or literally carried us to the stars. Today, we invite you to join us as we look back at the unique role the United States military has played in outer space in the present day and to come with us on another journey into the past, back to the Cold War in the early days of the space race. Some people may ask, why we are in space in the first place, even for peaceful purposes. After all, don't we have plenty of problems right here on Earth? But what goes on in space has a powerful impact on all of our lives right here on Earth. During World War II, a man named Arthur C. Clarke served in the British Royal Air Force. Clarke would go on to write classic science fiction novels such as 2001, A Space Odyssey, while operating the British military's top-secret radar system, Clark once looked up at the night sky and wondered if it might be possible to bounce radio waves off the moon. After all, the moon is the brightest object in the night sky, precisely because it reflects plenty of sunlight back to the Earth. Perhaps it could reflect radio waves to different places on the Earth as well. Sadly, though, sending out a few signals, Clark found that the moon did not reflect radio waves. After his failed experiment, Clark's imagination posed a different question. What if you could send tiny spaceships up into outer space to bounce those radio signals back 
What if you could place a radio transmitter hundreds of miles above the Earth's surface? Arthur C. Clarke reasoned, if you could place an unmanned spaceship in orbit, then you could certainly use that spaceship to reflect radio signals. In fact, with just a few tiny spaceships orbiting around the Earth, you could communicate with just about anyone anywhere on the planet. Let's consider the planet Earth as it exists today. Some planets in the solar system, like Saturn, have rings of rock and ice orbiting around them. Yet the Earth is the only planet that we know of that has faint, artificial rings made by us. These rings are thousands of artificial satellites that human beings have placed into orbit around the Earth over the past few decades. Satellites help us predict weather and climate change on the Earth. They help military commanders see troop movements on the ground during wars. Some of these satellites help with the transmission of television, internet, and phone calls. Many satellites are in low Earth orbit, somewhere between 100 and 1,000 miles above the Earth. Some of these satellites are much further out, though. For instance, our GPS satellites are up in medium Earth orbit. That's more than 10,000 miles above the surface of the Earth. GPS stands for the Global Positioning System. Google Maps, among others, relies on this very technology up in outer space. What would happen if suddenly, without warning, we lost all these satellites? It's not as far-fetched as it may sound. A large solar superstorm could damage our satellites. Or perhaps if we were at war with an enemy nation, they might try to destroy our satellites. In 1985, the United States became the first country in the world to destroy an orbiting spaceship with a weapon. It wasn't an act of war, though. America fired a missile at one of our own failing satellites in low Earth orbit destroying it instantly. Until that time, no other nation in history had destroyed an orbiting satellite with a weapon. Maybe we did it just to see if it could be done successfully, just in case. Over two decades later, China launched a missile that destroyed one of their own weather satellites also. What if there was a war between China and the United States? What if, during this war, China decided to start launching missiles to blow up American satellites. It would make it very difficult for American military commanders on the ground to see troop movements, and it would give the other side a huge advantage. If we lost our satellites, there would be other side effects too. It's hard to imagine the chaos that would ensue. Most cell phones wouldn't be able to make calls. We could fall back on ground-based phone lines and undersea cables, but the sheer amount of phone calls would likely overwhelm that system, meaning even many landline phones simply wouldn't work. Hundreds of millions of internet connections would vanish in an instant. Since television is often reliant on satellites, a lot of television would disappear too. What if we lost our wonderful GPS satellites? We wouldn't be able to use GPS navigation anymore, Airline pilots and air traffic controllers use GPS to chart the most efficient course on their flights. They could try to find other ways to navigate, but accidents, mid-air collisions, and plane crashes would be all but certain. GPS also provides the world with a sort of universal time standard for everyone to use. This is crucial for banking and financial transactions. Without GPS, we would have to revert to using ground-based clocks, but the tight synchronization of our world's clocks would be lost. Most credit cards and bank accounts would freeze if our satellites were down, and a worldwide financial crisis would likely follow. American Congressman Jim Cooper is the ranking member of a subcommittee within America's House Armed Services Committee. He said, quote, We could be deaf, dumb, and blind within seconds. Seldom has a great nation been so vulnerable. Recently, the current President of the United States directed the Department of Defense and the Pentagon to look into the creation of a Space Corps, 
a potential new branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. But before this new branch, or any new branch of the Armed Forces, can be created, there will likely need to be decisive action from Congress. Such an idea is not new. It was considered early on in the Bush administration, in the year 2000. But the September 11th attacks drastically changed American military policy. While such a branch might indeed lead to the militarization of outer space, the fact is that it may have other peaceful applications as well. A space force could act as a sort of coast guard for American spaceships traveling in and out of low Earth orbit. They could also track and perhaps even clean up an increasingly dangerous amount of space debris and space junk currently floating in orbit around our planet. Of course, the fact that there is currently no branch known as the Space Force doesn't mean that the United States military has never taken an interest in outer space. In 1965, Army engineers wrote a report titled Meanderings of a Weapon-Oriented Mind When Applied in a Vacuum Such as the Moon. In theory, it was concluded that conventional guns could fire bullets in outer space or on the moon. Considering the low gravity of the moon, the report suggested using recoilless rifles, since the force of the weapon's recoil might fling astronauts backwards. Conventional firearm lubricants would evaporate in the intense heat of sunlight, leaving firearms unlubricated. Larger triggers would need to be developed so astronauts could fire their guns with the thick gloves on their spacesuits. At the dawn of the space race in the 1950s, the U.S. Air Force said that any vehicle flying around should be under their control, regardless of whether it flies in the air or in space. The U.S. Navy said they should be involved because, after all, they're called space ships, not space planes. Ships are the Navy's domain. The Army said that if America landed a man on the moon, then the moon would be the ultimate high ground in outer space. The U.S. Army, logically, must occupy the high ground. Ultimately, the U.S. Air Force seemed to prevail, at least so far. Consider the X-37. It's an unmanned spaceship operated not by NASA, but by the United States Air Force, a sort of space drone. Modeled after NASA's crewed space shuttle, it has a cargo bay, just like the space shuttle, and it can land on a runway, like an airplane. The X-37 has flown in space multiple times, often for very long periods, but its missions are always a secret. Some have theorized that the X-37 could be used to snatch up foreign satellites, stealing them and taking them back to Earth in its cargo bay. But that's just speculation. A few years ago, at an abandoned launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center, a strange suit was found in an old dusty crate. This funny-looking blue suit was different from any of the spacesuits worn by America's NASA astronauts. There was a tiny name patch on it, too, yet the name didn't match up with any NASA astronauts in American history, nor did it match up with any of the names of NASA astronaut trainees. There was a patch with an American flag on the shoulder of the suit. So where exactly did it come from? Who wore it? And why was it made? It turned out that NASA wasn't the only organization in America planning to go into space. In the 1960s, both the United States and the Soviet Union wanted to use unmanned satellites to spy on each other from low Earth orbit. Special cameras with advanced magnification systems could be used to see tiny details on the Earth below. There was a problem, though. The first spy satellites often took photos that were blurry and out of focus. The solution? Air Force astronauts could take far better pictures than unmanned satellites. The men were pilots that were trained just like NASA astronauts. They learned how to fly spaceships, orbital mechanics, and even astronomy. At NASA, Astronauts train in large swimming pools to simulate working in the microgravity environment of outer space. The Air Force's astro-spies couldn't train in such a public place, though. So at a secret facility 
on a remote island in the Caribbean Sea, the Astra spies trained in the shallow waters to simulate working in the weightless environment of space. These men were some of the best pilots in the world. One of these Air Force astronauts was military fighter pilot Richard Truly. Eventually, he joined NASA, flew into orbit on the space shuttle, and later on, he even became the administrator of NASA. Another astro spy was Major Robert Lawrence, one of the best pilots in the Air Force. Major Lawrence also had a Ph.D. in chemistry. He would have been America's first African-American astronaut. Sadly, though, none of the men trained ever got a chance to fly in outer space. Unmanned spy satellites had become more advanced after just a few years, and astro spies were no longer needed, at least not in the American military. The Soviet Union had also trained their own military astronauts. But they actually did get a chance to fly in space. Their home in orbit above the Earth was the Almaz, a 20-ton complex built to stay up for years at a time. Almaz means a diamond in the rough in Russian. It was a code name never to be spoken aloud by anyone. The official name for the station was Salyut. It was also part of the first manned space station ever built. The Soviet Union claimed it was part of their civilian space program designed to do peaceful scientific experiments in space. In reality, though, the station was made to allow Russian astro-spies to take photos of American military installations on Earth. The magnification on its camera lenses was so sharp that while in orbit, Russian astro-spies could see the exact make and model of cars driving around on American streets. This space station also marked the first time in history that weapons were placed on board an orbiting spacecraft. On the belly of the station, there was a rapid-fire artillery camp. This large space gun could fire up to 2,000 rounds a minute. Chief designer Vladimir Polyachenko said that the cannon was built for defensive purposes. In case any foreign astronauts ever attempted to board, inspect, or even destroy the Almaz, the cannon could be fired. One Almaz crew even successfully test-fired the weapon in space as part of their mission. The space gun worked flawlessly. The Almaz was a military space station built for military purposes. Even so, both America's civilian space program as well as Russia's were completely dependent on military technology, even when their intentions in space were peaceful. Military hardware was essential to getting humans into space from the very start of the space age. German rocket scientist Werner von Braun built V-2 rockets as deadly weapons for Nazi Germany. But after surrendering to American forces, von Braun quickly found himself employed by the United States to make rockets for their armed forces. In America, von Braun created the Redstone ballistic missile, which could traverse hundreds of miles. Russian rocket scientist Sergei Korolyov built the first functioning ICBM, or Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, the R-7, which traveled about 3,000 miles. While inefficient as an ICBM, this piece of military hardware, designed for a nuclear warhead, later carried Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, into space. Today, the R-7 has flown more than any other family of rockets in history, even though it wasn't originally even designed for space travel. Von Braun would go on to build the Saturn V rocket, which could carry a craft with three astronauts to the moon. The rocket, essentially comprised of large fuel tanks, boosted tiny ships into outer space, each about the size of a family car. Yet ten years prior to the Saturn V's first launch, a dedicated and brilliant group of American physicists and engineers designed a spacecraft that would dwarf even the Saturn V. Their design could carry a much larger crew. It was bigger, 
heavier, faster, and more powerful than the Saturn V. This mighty space vehicle could allow human beings to explore the solar system and beyond, or destroy the entire planet Earth. The name of this craft was written in the stars. The stars and planets above us appear as tiny points of light in the night sky, but they are actual places, every bit as real as the planet Earth. The planets in our solar system are hundreds of millions of miles away. The stars that we see in the sky are even further away from us, trillions of miles out in space. We measure the distance between us and the stars in light years. A light year, simply put, is the distance it takes for light to travel in a single year. Light moves incredibly fast, but outer space is very large. Astronomer Carl Sagan once said, quote, Space and time are intertwined. We cannot look out into space without looking back into time. Many of those distant stars we see in the night sky have their own planets. We call those exoplanets. Human beings have never traveled any further than the Earth's moon, and the moon is the closest thing to us in space. We haven't yet personally visited any planets, let alone stars, because, simply put, they're extremely far away. Even so, there is at least one man up there in the stars. His name is Orion. Orion is one of the most instantly recognizable constellations in the night sky. Three points of light, almost perfectly lined up horizontally in the sky, make up what we call Orion's Belt. Here in North America, it's visible right now, during the winter months from November through February. The name Orion comes from ancient Greek mythology. He was a strong and mighty hunter. In this mythology, Orion once boasted that he could kill every animal on the face of the earth, enraging Zeus's wife Hera. Orion is also the name of a small space capsule built by Lockheed Martin. In a few years, it will carry four to six American astronauts into space, outside of low Earth orbit, to the moon, and perhaps beyond. But the Orion that is the subject of today's episode is far lesser known. It was a code name for a military project to build a massive and mighty spacecraft different from anything ever flown before or since. In 1958, renowned mathematician and theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson was working at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Slender and soft-spoken, Dyson was so brilliant that he had received a lifetime appointment in Princeton before his 30th birthday, and before he had even finished getting his Ph.D. A few months prior, the Western world had been shocked by the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. The United States was scrambling to pull out all the stops. In an effort to get their own space program off the ground and catch up to the Soviets, the starting gun had been fired in the space race. It was at that time that Dyson was approached by a man named Frederick de Hoffman, a nuclear physicist who worked to design the first atom bomb in World War II during the Manhattan Project. De Hoffman told Dyson that he was recruiting physicists for an exciting new project, a spaceship that could carry astronauts to the outer boundaries of the solar system. It was a top-secret endeavor called Project Orion. After hearing the details of the project, Dyson said, quote, It is the thing all spaceflight projects have been praying for. He immediately took a leave of absence and eagerly agreed to lend his expertise to the project. In a letter home to his family, Dyson said, quote, About what we are intending to do, I cannot, of course, tell you anything. All I can say is everything else in this field will be children's toys once we are finished. What made Project Orion so unique 
was that it didn't rely on chemical rockets. It wasn't really a rocket at all. Instead, the physicists working on the project planned to use a far more powerful and efficient energy source to propel their craft. Over ten years prior, during the summer of 1945, the invention of the fission bomb changed the course of human history. A small, dedicated group of physicists created a device that used explosives to apply pressure to a highly unstable element, plutonium. And squeezing this tiny piece of plutonium, breaking it apart, and splitting its atomic nucleus, a massive amount of energy was released in a chain reaction, resulting in a weapon unlike anything seen before. Shortly after the atomic bomb had been invented, a Polish-American scientist wrote an interesting memo. His name was Stanislaw Ulam, and he proposed using a nuclear explosion to power a large spaceship. This was the idea that Project Orion reimagined more than a decade after Ulam's memo. The blast wave from an atomic explosion could jolt a spacecraft forward, accelerating it at fantastic speeds through the universe. When de Hoffman recruited Dyson, Dyson did some preliminary calculations on the physics of such a spacecraft. Some who worked with Dyson said that advanced mathematics appeared totally effortless to him, that he never seemed to erase any of his figures or cross anything out. After doing the math for just a few minutes, Dyson concluded Project Orion would indeed work. Using explosions to propel a vehicle might sound outrageous and perhaps dangerous, but remember, millions of people all around the world drive cars powered by explosions. The internal combustion engine in automobiles powers pistons moved by tiny explosions. 200 years ago, many people might have wondered why human beings would give up riding perfectly good horses to travel in an explosion-powered vehicle with flammable fuel spitting foul fumes out the tailpipe. The answer is that cars can travel much further and much faster than any horse. Riders in side automobiles can be much more comfortable, too. Project Orion offered all the same advantages. People could travel much further, much faster, and in greater comfort than even with the largest chemical rockets. Spaceships powered by large chemical rockets needed to be tiny, lightweight vehicles with small crews. A vehicle powered by atomic explosions would have to be very large and made out of very heavy materials to protect astronauts from the gamma radiation emitted by nuclear explosions. A smaller craft would be pulverized by such a blast, while a larger craft could be much safer. Even though many were skeptical that such a vehicle could be built, a defense contractor called General Atomics began working with Dyson on the design of Orion. Orion was funded by an agency in the Department of Defense called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Dyson would leave Princeton to move closer to General Dynamics headquarters, near La Jolla in Southern California, to collaborate with Ted Taylor. At the time, both men and most of their team were only in their mid-thirties. Taylor was a visionary physicist who had played a key role in developing some of the smallest nuclear fission bombs ever created at the time, a skill that would prove instrumental on Project Orion. While Taylor had an overactive imagination, he was undeniably brilliant. The small team set to work designing a massive vehicle. A small hole at the bottom of the craft would dispense miniature atomic bombs called nuclear pulse units. The explosion of each pulse unit would jolt the craft forward. A 1,000-ton plate of solid steel at the bottom of the craft would protect the crew from the blast wave of superheated plasma that would ensue after each atomic explosion. Bam! 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 With each new explosion, the ship would accelerate at ever greater speeds throughout outer space. They needed an effective system 
to dispense each nuclear pulse unit, one after the other. So they consulted with members of the Coca-Cola Company to develop just such machinery. Oddly enough, the simple technology needed to dispense bottles of soda in rapid succession from vending machines would be just the sort of system they would need. Some tiny amount of material in the solid steel plate at the bottom of the craft would eventually start to get boiled off by all those nuclear blasts. But it was calculated that it wouldn't be enough to cause any serious damage to a thousand tons of solid steel. Special oil could even be sprayed on the steel to minimize the ablation from each explosion. The crew compartment on top of the steel plate would also weigh about a thousand tons. But Dyson calculated that there would be a serious problem with this design. The jolts of acceleration from each nuclear blast wave would be so intense that a human crew might be experiencing 15 or 20 Gs, or as much as 15 to 20 times the force of gravity, with each jolt of acceleration. The best fighter pilots in the United States and the Soviet military typically passed out after around 9 or 10 Gs. There was a solution, though. Attach massive pistons to the steel plate to act as shock absorbers. Like giant springs, the shock absorbers could transfer the momentum of the blast wave and pass it along to the crew compartment. The result would be a far gentler acceleration of only about 2 or 3 Gs, the same acceleration felt by astronauts launched into space on chemical rockets. The finished version was a vehicle that would weigh a total of 4,000 tons when it left Earth. Compare that to the Apollo-era capsule that took three men to the moon. That spacecraft weighed only 18 tons. The 4,000-ton Orion vehicle could carry a crew of 200 astronauts and 1,000 tons of cargo anywhere in the solar system. NASA, as a civilian space agency, refused to have anything to do with Project Orion. This was because Orion was funded by the Department of Defense and because it involved nuclear explosions. Imagine today's International Space Station currently in orbit around the Earth. At 400 tons, it's the largest space station ever assembled. Really, it's the largest space station or space structure of any kind ever assembled. It took dozens of launches via chemical rockets and was assembled in orbit over a period of years. It's the size of a football field and can comfortably house as many as 10 people in Earth orbit. A single Orion launch could easily place two international space stations into orbit in just a single day. Dyson was perplexed by America's pledge to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade. By Project Orion's standards, such a pledge seemed far too modest. They adopted their own slogan, Mars by 1965, Saturn by 1970. The Orion team quickly began planning for such trips. Even so, many remained skeptical that such an outlandish concept could work. Could a stable spacecraft really be powered by explosions going off behind it? Could the system for dispensing each nuclear pulse unit really remain reliable? Could a vehicle be built strong enough to withstand each blast? And would it be safe for the crew inside? To answer these questions, the Project Orion team began conducting some experiments at a U.S. Navy test site called Point Loma. Surrounded by barbed wire, it was remote, on a deserted hillside overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It wasn't long before explosions could be heard echoing along the distant hills. Like a few giddy schoolboys playing with fireworks, they began testing their design using conventional C4 explosives to see how it would all hold up. They created a model that was about five feet tall, which they nicknamed Hot Rod. In the middle, there was a long pipe filled with individual C4 explosive pulse units 
and a steel plate at the bottom that could withstand dozens of blasts. If they could prove that the test model could fly using conventional explosives, perhaps they could convince the skeptics that a larger Orion spacecraft could be just as reliable. On a sunny afternoon in 1959, the Orion team gathered in a hillside bunker and watched their test model detonate its charges one by one, soaring to a height of over 100 feet, dropping tiny explosives out the bottom as it climbed into the air. Ted Taylor was stunned and overjoyed, and the team popped the cork on a bottle of champagne. They took canisters with film footage of the test to Washington, D.C. to demonstrate to their critics in the Department of Defense that their spaceship could work. The critics fell silent after seeing the film footage. Thus far, the project had been dominated by physicists. Now, John M. Wilde, the chief aerodynamics engineer at Northrop Grumman, was brought in to help. David Weiss, a test pilot who had flown virtually every experimental aircraft in the U.S. military, also joined the project. Weiss would fly the first Orion spacecraft. General Atomics had a sister company that was contracted to build nuclear submarines for the U.S. Navy. They could easily rely on the very same principles of engineering for building a steel spacecraft. A full-sized, 4,000-ton Orion spacecraft could carry 200 astronauts to Mars. Dyson designed that ship to be the size of a 10-story building. Every crew member would have their own individual stateroom. The ship would have hot showers, a cafeteria, a greenhouse to grow fresh food, a library, and an observation deck with large panoramic windows. Orion was designed years before the advanced guidance computers used by later NASA astronauts. As a brilliant mathematician, Dyson was convinced he could navigate with a protractor, graph paper, and a sextant a tool that sailors had used for centuries in navigating the open ocean by taking sightings off the stars. The engine room of the craft would be much like the engine room of a large seafaring vessel, with mechanical levers and gauges, huge steel pistons would slide back and forth, powered by compressed gas. A track, much like an assembly line, would fling nuclear pulse units out the back of the spaceship. Orion would look less like an airplane or a space capsule and more like a large ocean liner. There were no principles of physics or engineering that prevented the construction of such a ship. For the Orion team, it wasn't a question of if the ship would fly, but when. Dyson imagined a trip to Mars with himself among a crew of 200 people, engineers, astronomers, and geologists. There were even discussions about inviting Russian cosmonauts to come along on the journey to Mars. Dyson imagined that their trip to the Red Planet would be much like naturalist and biologist Charles Darwin's voyage of the HMS Beagle. The Beagle was a large wooden sailing ship in the 1800s that spent nearly five years collecting plants, rocks, and fossils in far-off lands, from the Galapagos Islands to Australia and New Zealand. Such a mission to a far-off planet might seem like a strange endeavor for the United States military, but remember, it was the conquistadors, soldiers from the Spanish Empire, who explored and mapped much of North and South America hundreds of years ago. Even in the modern era, America's military has explored many new frontiers. For instance, in 1946, the U.S. Navy set out on an expedition to peacefully explore Antarctica, called Operation High Jump. One memo from Project Orion listed November of 1962 or January of 1965 as possible departure dates for the trip to Mars. Smaller landing craft could ferry astronauts down to the surface of Mars and back to the Orion mothership in Mars orbit. After their Mars expedition, 
the crew could return to Earth, or chart a course for Jupiter and Saturn and their many moons. The team later visited the U.S. Army's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. At the time, the military was attempting to launch a 100-pound satellite into Earth orbit. The Orion team raised more than a few eyebrows when they asked engineers if they would be able to build an auxiliary space landing vehicle for the purposes of landing a human crew on Mars, or perhaps landing them on Jupiter's largest moon, Ganymede. Dyson himself was particularly curious about visiting Saturn's large icy moon, Enceladus. Ted Taylor said, quote, It may be 20 years that we would be cavorting around the outer parts of the solar system. The real interest was landing on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. We really believed we would be doing it personally. Dyson shared Taylor's vision for space travel, and it was clearly evident in a letter where he wrote back to his family and said the following, quote, From my childhood, it has been my conviction that men would reach the planets in my lifetime and that I should help in the enterprise. If I try to rationalize this conviction, I suppose it rests on two beliefs. One, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our present-day science, and we shall only find out what they are if we go out and look for them. Two, it is, in the long run, essential to the growth of any new and high civilization that small groups of men can escape from their neighbors and from their governments to go and live as they please in the wilderness. A truly isolated, small, and creative society will never again be possible on this planet. My purpose and my belief is that the bombs that killed and maimed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki shall one day open the skies to man. There were even calculations and feasibility studies done by Dyson for much larger Orion spacecraft, an interstellar ship that could carry not merely a thousand tons of cargo, but one million tons of cargo, enough to establish a colony on an exoplanet in a nearby star system. Even an Orion starship could have been built with existing technology and materials. The top speed of such a ship could be up to 10% the speed of light, Consider how accessible the universe might become if we could travel at such speeds. Mars is more than 100 million miles away from the Earth, and with chemical rockets, it would take nine months to reach it. In an Orion spacecraft, travel time to Mars could be cut down to as little as four hours. Saturn is even further, roughly 700 million miles away, requiring years of travel with conventional spacecraft. In an Orion spacecraft, travel time could be cut down to just 12 hours. Proxima Centauri is one of the closest stars to the planet Earth, over four light-years away, and it is still trillions of miles away. Today, we know there is at least one exoplanet in orbit around that star, which might be almost the same size as the Earth. An Orion starship could leave the solar system and arrive at Alpha Centauri in 47 years' time. In the skies of that exoplanet, visitors would see two suns. Compare these speeds to the Voyager space probes, which are among some of the fastest robotic probes. Launched in the 1970s, they didn't leave the solar system until the 2000s, and will take several millennia to reach the nearest stars. Of course, traveling at 10% the speed of light is probably ill-advised, 
at that speed, a pebble or a grain of sand might pulverize the spacecraft, and slowing down to reach one's destination would be very difficult also. Dyson admitted that Orion wouldn't be ideal for interstellar travel, but 5% the speed of light, or even 2% the speed of light, provides for extremely quick interplanetary travel. In reality, safely traveling to Mars in an Orion craft and slowing down before reaching the destination would likely take a few weeks. A trip to Jupiter or Saturn might take a couple of months, still faster than any chemical rocket can offer. Eventually, the United States Air Force got involved in the project and encouraged the Orion physicists to continue developing the craft, but under one condition. Since it was a military project, Orion would need to have a military use. So they reluctantly designed an Orion battleship, with artillery cannons and ICBMs mounted on its side. It would also have special weapons. One of them was known as a Kasaba howitzer, a nuclear cannon that would direct the plasma from a nuclear explosion into a solid stream, a sort of nuclear flamethrower. An Orion battleship could even function as a sort of Death Star. Since Orion could carry large payloads into space, America's entire nuclear weapons arsenal could be placed on board and the craft could remain in a permanent geostationary orbit over the Soviet Union, ready to fire its ICBMs at a moment's notice. If the Soviet Union tried to launch missiles to destroy the Orion Death Star, it could turn around and hide from the nuclear blasts behind its 1,000-ton steel pusher plate. The engineers and physicists hoped that creating a military application for the spacecraft might ensure more funding so that they might still realize their dreams of landing on Mars as well as flying to Jupiter and Saturn. At the time, General Thomas S. Power was head of America's Strategic Air Command, America's Nuclear Strike Force. General Power said, quote, Whoever controls Orion will control the world. Such a craft could indeed change the course of world history, or perhaps destroy the planet Earth in the event of a nuclear war. There were rumors that President Kennedy himself had seen a model of this Orion battleship and was horrified. President Kennedy did not want nuclear weapons in space under any circumstances. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Soviet missiles were briefly moved into Cuba, America and the Soviet Union had come to the brink of all-out nuclear war, and the crisis was narrowly averted. But public opinion was starting to shift against anything involving nuclear weapons or even nuclear technology. With the signing of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1963, nuclear tests were forbidden underwater, in the atmosphere, and in outer space. Thus, building or launching a nuclear-powered Orion spacecraft would be forbidden under the conditions of the treaty. And so, Project Orion ended, and all documents and memos relating to the project were locked away in a dark vault. Much of it remains classified to this very day. President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon for the first time in 1969, nearly half a century ago, making the journey with the aid of a chemical rocket. To this day, human beings have not left Earth orbit since 1972. The tiny, unmanned Voyager 1 space probe arrived at Jupiter in 1979 and began exploring the outer solar system nearly one full decade after the Orion physicists thought they would be making the same journey in person. There are some who still believe that perhaps someday an Orion spacecraft might still be built. 
if a massive asteroid were going to impact the Earth, an Orion spacecraft might be the only way to deflect it and effectively change its course. Remember, it was President Kennedy who said that space science has no conscience of its own. It's up to us to determine whether it becomes a force for good or evil. There's a lot that could be said about the dangers of space science and space exploration, both for those astronauts who go on the journey and for all of us right here on Earth. But today, we will close, as we so often do, with the brilliant words of the late astronomer, Carl Sagan, who said, quote, Our small planet, at this moment, here we face a critical branch point in history. It is well within our power to destroy our civilization and perhaps our species as well. If we capitulate to superstition or greed or stupidity, we can plunge our world into a darkness deeper than the time between the collapse of classical civilizations and the Italian Renaissance. But we are also capable of using our compassion and our intelligence, our technology and our wealth, to make an abundant and meaningful life for every inhabitant of this planet, to enhance enormously our understanding of the universe, and to carry us to the stars. Thank you.